Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well uh, this week. We are now beginning week 25 for June 19th through uh, June 25th. This is youth camp week. Um, and uh, as I'm recording this, I'm not, this is obviously I'm not recording this during youth camp week, but just thinking about what that's going to be like. I got Father's Day on June 19th, youth camp that week. It'll be a fun week. Um, across the state and such. So, um, but uh, wherever you're at, hope you'll be reading through the Bible with us. Um, we're going to be reading in Romans, in the heart here now of Romans, chapters 4 through 8, Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Remember, we've talked about the three big sections of Romans. You know, basically 1 through 8 is about the doctrine of justification and all of its implications and consequences and the fruits of it for our lives uh, and in salvation. Uh, 9 through 11 is about the calling of the Gentiles and the unbelief of the Jews. And then 12 through 16 is kind of the practical implications, not the saving implications of, as we see um, in uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, but we're now going to look at the practical ways. So then how should I live um, in, in chapter 12 through 16? So this week we're in four through eight, and uh, we're looking here at Paul is shown last week that all are sinful, all are guilty. Jews who have the book, Gentiles who don't, everyone is guilty before God. Everyone is, is guilty. There is no partiality with God. We have forgotten God. We have rejected God. We are, we are haters of God, actually, Paul says. That's crazy. Um, and none of us can be acceptable in his sight by what we do. Paul even says in Romans chapter 3, he says um, uh, he says that we have already charged that all, both the Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. And, and by the way, notice this, by the way, Paul is only quoting the Old Testament scriptures. He's only pulling together verses from the Old Testament to highlight the truth that he's proclaiming to us. So the Old Testament itself said this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, on and on. And yet... Even though none of us can be acceptable to God by what we do, we owe God that, but we can't give it to him. In verse 21 of chapter 3, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So I want to read, this week I'm really just going to read from Horatius Bonar, um, because it's really good stuff. I feel like it's also very gospel-centered, but also very easy um, to understand. So I would, if you're ever interested in just kind of using these for or looking at these books, um, or you can find it online, it's called Light and Truth, Bible Thoughts and Themes. I, I really like it a lot. Um, I hope you do too. Um, so we've talked about how um, 
you know, God in justification and righteousness last week. It's through Christ. It's what Christ has done for us. And now we're going to hear in Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to say, right? So just so he's going to remember the Jew and Gentile thing, right? Because some people say, well, is he the God of Jews only? Is he God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. And then he's going to go to Abraham now and to David. And he's going to argue, Paul is going to argue that this is not a new doctrine, what I'm saying. He's saying in Romans chapter 4, don't you know, this is how Abraham was saved. This is how David was saved. What I'm saying to you, he's saying, to his readers, remember that, this is a big deal. I'm preaching the old religion. And this is very important for us too, because sometimes we can be tempted, right, to think those Old Testament saints like Abraham and David, Noah, they were saved differently than how we are. Paul says, no, 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 no. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Let's read about what that thing, what that means here. So this is from Horatius Bonar. How did Abraham get his righteousness? That's the question. He's talking here from Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, um, which says this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So let's see how this worked in Abraham's life. And maybe you didn't realize this, but Abraham, remember we sang that song as children? And if you were you know, my age or maybe older, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Well, the, that is actually a true doctrine. Um, Abraham is our father. And let's talk about what that means and uh, his justification here now. It says this, justification by faith, this is Horatius Bonar, by the way, justification by faith is a very old doctrine, one of the oldest dogmas on record. It is as old as Abraham, as old as Abel. The patriarchs knew it well and lived thereby. It was as believing men that they were justified. The old pagans had not so much as a glimpse of this. It required a divine revelation to communicate even the idea or possibility of it, much more the actual thing. The apostle goes back to Abraham for his illustration of this free justification and reminds us that his faith was counted for righteousness. That is, his believing was reckoned, was reckoned instead of his working in the great question of acceptance. He took God at his word and in thus honoring him, pleased God. Hence the apostle thus strongly puts the matter, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. First of all, who justifies? It is God that justifieth. The judge, the lawgiver, is the justifier. Self-justification is as useless as it is impossible. To acquit myself is of no avail unless the law and the lawgiver do the same. I must have my sentence of acquittal or justification from God himself. It is only his verdict that can satisfy me now, or can avail me in the day of the great reckoning. Not guilty from my own lips or from man's lips will profit nothing. Not guilty from his lips is altogether sufficient. I need no more to set my soul at rest and to give me peace of conscience, tranquility of soul. 2. What sort of justification does he give? Man's ideas of justification are vague and low. We must recognize God's thoughts upon the question. His justification is one righteous. The adjustment of the question between us and God is a righteous adjustment. Its basis is righteousness. Nothing but this would satisfy God or ourselves or make us feel safe in accepting it in our dealings with the holy God. 
This righteousness is secured by the full payment of the penalty by a surety or substitute. He does what we would have, what we should have done. He suffers what we should have suffered. He lives our life. He dies our death. He descends to our grave. Thus he exhausts the penalty and so makes justification a righteous thing. And our justification is that of men who have suffered the law's full penalty for our sins. Our pardon is that of men who, in the person of their substitute, have undergone all that they deserved eternally to undergo. The just one suffering for the unjust makes the justification of the unjust a just and righteous thing. Two, it is complete. It extends to our whole persons, to our whole lives, to every sin committed by us. The whole man is justified. It is no half pardon, no semi-acceptance that we receive, but something complete and divine. Perfect as God can make it, so perfect as to satisfy conscience here and to stand the test of the judgment seat hereafter. Nothing in us or about us that goes to make up our character as sinners is left unjustified. Three, irreversible. No second verdict can alter our legal position. God is not a man that he should lie. Pardoned once, then pardoned forever. Who is he that condemneth? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? For it is divine. It is a justification worthy of God, a justification which shall place the justified on a far higher level than the first Adam stood upon, a justification which can only be likened to that of the Son of God himself when he rose from the dead, being justified in the Spirit. 1 Timothy 3.16 Thirdly, for whom is it? For the ungodly. Yes, for such alone. Righteousness for the unrighteous is that which the righteous one came to bring. In this matter of pardon and acceptance, the principle is not to him that hath shall more be given, but to him that hath nothing shall all be given. It is not partial or incipient godliness that attracts this justification to an individual. The only fitness or qualification is our need, our ungodliness, our unrighteousness, total and complete, without one particle of goodness or deservingness. It was for the ungodly that Christ died. It was for the ungodly that this righteousness was provided, and he who thinks to have it on any other footing save that of simple need or in any other character save that of unrighteousness or ungodliness cannot possibly obtain it. The good news which we bring concerning this righteousness is that it is for the ungodly, for the ungodliest. And he who would qualify or explain away that word, ungodly, subverts and denies the whole gospel of the grace of God. Fourth, how we get it? By believing. In accepting God's testimony to the righteousness. In crediting his word concerning this justification, we are justified at once. The righteousness becomes ours, and God treats us henceforth as men who are righteous as men who, on the account of the righteousness which has thus become theirs, are entitled to be dealt with as righteous, out and out. Of Abraham, it is said, his faith was counted for righteousness. That is, God counted this believing man as one who had done all righteousness, just because he was a believing man. Not that his act or acts of faith were substituted as equivalent to work, but his believing brought him into the possession of all that working could have done. Thus, in believing... We get, the, we get the righteousness. Our believing accomplishes for us all that our working could have done. 
The apostles' words are very bold, and the comparison between the working and believing which they embody brings out the great distinction between man's thoughts and God's man's, and and God's, excuse me, between man's thoughts and God's thoughts, man's ways and God's. To him that worketh not, but believeth. We are so apt to mix up the two together, the believing and the working, the believing and the feeling, that it is needful to have a strong statement like this thoroughly to clear up our thoughts and to prevent confusion. The expression here, believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, is another way of expressing the truth, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it points us to God who laid our sins upon his son, that by this bearing of them in the person of a divine surety, God might be just and the justifier of him who believes. Come and be justified, is his message to the sinner. Credit my testimony and be freely pardoned. For our gospel is not do this or that, but come, reap the fruits of what what another has done. Come and without working or waiting or praying or feeling, enter into the complete justification of him who believeth. Again, solid gospel stuff. I want to notice a couple of things real quick with you as we think about that together and kind of chew on this. Um, that, that Paul here is talking about um, how we're saved. And one of the things he that um, Bonar here talks about is that it who is this for? It is for the ungodly. So what what did the scene here and, and I maybe maybe it would be helpful again to, to think about this. The question of justification is the question of of us standing before God. And what the scene is is one, two, and three talk about is that it is us standing before God and He's our judge. He sees everything we've done everything that we are, everything that if he uh, hadn't restrained us, we would have done. He sees all of our thoughts, all of our desires, um, everything about us. He sees us as we are. And the question is, is as he looks at us, um, we, we are condemned he looks at us and says, you haven't fulfilled the law on yourself. You've not loved me. You forget me. You turn away from me. You suppress my truth and unrighteousness. You don't keep my law. You, you don't do any of it. You are not righteous at all. But then as we stand before the judgment seat of God, this gospel comes to us now and says, listen, what you haven't done, God has given a Savior who came to be the substitute, to do all of those things that you're guilty of, all of those things he did, and he will forget, and God will forgive you because of what this man did. Because this man lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, raised from the dead, and is seated at God's right hand. Because of all that he did, God will forgive you, and you will be treated as if you had lived his life. And so God offers to pardon us as we stand before the judgment seat of him. That's what justification is. Is then God says, whenever we receive this verdict, believe upon him, as Bonar says, believe the testimony. Whenever we do that, when we receive this, God, God tells us, 
We are, we are clear. We are free. We owe him nothing more as far as salvation is concerned. We are, we have paid the debt because Jesus paid it for us. We have done all the good works necessary for salvation because Jesus did them for us. Not because we did them ourselves, but because he did it for us in our name. And so all of his stuff is credited to us. It's like um, in a ledger or in an account book. All of his uh, credits, all of his his uh, funds, so to speak, are transferred to my account, to our account. That's what justification is. And so we get that. How do we get that, though? We, to the ungodly, it comes to the ungodly, and how do we get that? Simply by believing. And he points out something that is so true, and it's easy it happens in subtle ways where he points out we mix working and believing. Those are two completely polar opposites. You either work for salvation or you believe and receive salvation. One is an active thing, working. Another is a passive thing whereby we receive everything from God. And you can't mix the two. And notice what he says here one time. He says, It is not by believing and working, and also he says believing and the feeling. Now, I dare say that sometimes in our circles, the the thing we're struggling with is not maybe so much, we wouldn't call it working, but we would say, I don't really feel the right way, or I don't really feel saved, or I don't feel like uh, the way I should, or whatever. We need to be careful because even those feelings and trying to stir those up, if we look at it, we very well may find that we are trying to once again buy God's love. We have to put that to death and simply receive everything he's done for us and trust him. He gets all the credit for our salvation and believing is simply believing his testimony of what he has done for us. That's all it is. Now, that produces a fruit in our lives where we love God in response, but we must never mix up faith with the love that comes as a fruit of it, right? We must never think that our love of God is faith. Faith may produce love, but faith itself is an empty hand receiving everything from a great God. Okay, so Romans 4, Paul continues talking about how David was justified. He continues to talk and talk about how Abraham is the father of all of us, Jews and Gentiles. We are his spiritual children. And actually, Paul says that's exactly what the Old Testament was saying all along. That's exactly what we got. Uh, That's exactly what was was talked about uh, back then. And so now, we, he looks here in Romans chapter 5 and says, in Romans chapter 5, opens up, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith because of this great truth of justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here I want to read some more from Horatius Bonar, in which he has here, this is called this, is called this the grace, the joy and the glory. And that's from Romans 5, 2. He says, let us note here the grace, one, the grace, two, the introduction into it, three, the abiding or standing, and four, the rejoicing. First, 
the grace. It is here called this grace, a well-known, most suitable and sufficient grace or free love, the free love of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the true grace of God, free love in the heart of God to the ungodly, to the unloving and lovable, unlovable. This grace or free love is absolute and unconditional, considering not our deservings or qualifications, but simply our need. It looks at us not as good, but as evil, not as sensible, but insensible, not as penitent, but impenitent, not as good in any sense or degree, but as wholly evil. It is not created or awakened by our amendments or good feelings or love or prayers or regeneration. It regards us simply as sinners, ungodly, needing God's favor and help. It is this free love that begins, carries on, and consummates a sinner's deliverance. The knowledge of this divine free love is life eternal. Out of this fountain, ever full and flowing, there comes to us pardon and joy and health and consolation and light. He that knows that free love knows that which saves him and draws him into happy fellowship with God. He that knows it not is still afar off, the child of darkness and the worshiper of an unknown God. We can neither be happy nor holy till we know it. It is the good news of God's free love that we preach. This is the ministry of the reconciliation. This is our mission and commission to testify the gospel of the grace of God and to tell that it is by his mercy that he saves us, to speak of the exceeding riches of the grace of God. To the access or introduction. We do not create or awaken this free love by any goodness or qualification of our own. It exists independent of these. Nor did Christ, by his coming and death, create that love. This love existed before. It was this that sent Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Yet without Christ, this love would never have reached us. It would have been a distant and inaccessible well, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. It is through him that this free love has found its way to us. He brings it to us and, for, and us to it. He gives access and entrance and introduction, for the word implies all these and is used elsewhere to signify the bringing or introducing one person to another, and is employed not simply in reference to the grace of God, but to God himself. Our outward or objective introducer and introduction is Christ himself. Our inward or subjective introduction and introducer is faith. Jesus brings us to time. Jesus brings us to the Father and the Father's grace, but he does so by producing faith in us. Without or apart from Christ, the grace cannot come to us, and without faith, Christ and we are kept at a distance from each other. God has given us his true testimony, both as to his grace and as to his Son, and we, in believing that testimony, become connected with both. The grace is deposited in Christ for us, and we, in coming to him, get the grace that is in him. The grace that is in him he has received from men, even for the rebellious. And this was the grace which he manifested when here on earth, both in his words and deeds. He was the gracious one, and as such the representative of the Father. We go to him and get his own in the Father's grace, the free love of Godhead. 3. The standing or abiding. In this grace or free love we have stood since we were introduced into it, and in it we are standing and shall stand. We stand in it. This is a believing man's true position. He takes his stand on the free love of God. This raises him up and holds him up, keeps him from fainting or falling or sliding. This free love is in him to this free love is to him one abiding peace, 
Two, abiding strength. Three, abiding security. This free love is to him sunshine, rain, food, water, medicine, wine. At this well he stands and drinks. In this sun he basks. To this storehouse he comes for everything. Have we used this free love as we ought? Are we using it constantly? Do we use it for strengthening our faith? For quickening our daily life? For increasing our holiness? For dispelling our doubts? For ministering consolation? In the constant recognition of this love, there is provision for a close walk with God and for a useful, zealous life. Are we thus employing it? Are we using it pure and undiluted? Love, true, free, unmingled, unmerited love. Or are we diluting it? Polluting it by mingling something of our own with it, making it less pure and heavenly and generous. Less absolutely and unconditionally and entirely free? Let us remember how much our our steadfastness and progress depend on our constant recognizing of and living on this free love. Apart from it, all is weakness, bondage, darkness, and instability. O free love of God, what a fountain of life and strength thou art to the weary, helpless sinner. For the rejoicing, this grace is not merely stability for us, but joy and hope and glory. Standing in this grace, we are filled with joy. This joy comes not from merely not merely from the past and present, but from the future. Not merely from the knowledge that we are beloved of God, but from the knowledge of what that love is to do for us hereafter. We rejoice because our future is filled with hope, the hope of the glory of God. Joy comes then from hope, hope from the God of love, hope sure and steadfast, hope that maketh not ashamed, everlasting hope. Glory is ours in prospect, the glory of God, and so great great is it that we reckon that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed, the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It is the glory of the new heavens and earth, the glory of resurrection, the glory of the kingdom, the very glory of Christ, and it is all ours, simply as those who have known and believed this free love of God. Hence the Apostles' Prayer, the God of the hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Take these lessons. One, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is on this we plant our feet. It is this that makes us strong. This love is our strength. Two, rejoice in the Lord. Ours should be a full and constant gladness. For both before and behind, we are compassed about with that which gladdens. Three, abound in hope. It is bright, blessed, and glorious. It is the hope of reigning with Christ. It will sustain and sanctify. It will animate and cheer. Thus do we glorify the God of hope. For realize the glory. Keep the eye steadfastly fixed upon it till its brightness fills our whole being. Again, I think this is one of the things that highlights to us as we're thinking about this this section is is why the doctrine of justification is so important and that's why really one through eight are all about it because the implications and what it brings if you misunderstand how we are accepted with god then you're going to lose this peace this joy this hope your your life is going to go up and down but if you want to know abiding joy and the grace and the access that we have and this wonderful this wonderful reality that we have in Christ well then you need to understand how we are made acceptable in his sight
That's why it's so important. That's why we believe that uh, with Luther that this doctrine is so important because if we misunderstand this doctrine, the church really fails, falls. We must preserve this and understand it well um, in order to live the Christian life. We want to stake our, take our stand and, and put our feet down boldly and firmly in this grace of God wherein we stand. Okay? So, Romans 5, Paul continues to talk about how the salvation that was given to us in Jesus is, is like that of a second Adam who does everything and undoes everything, we should maybe say, that the first Adam brought up to us. In 6, he tells us, no, just because justification is by grace, that obvi- the, the wrong conclusion would be for you to think that you can just go ahead and keep sinning. Actually, justification, also one of the implications as well now is you're free. You're free from sin. You have died to the old man. You're different now. You've been set free from the law as far as trying to earn your salvation. You are now free. And so now at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, which is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, it opens up and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that, those verses right there, we could just let sit. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God, for God has done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh and so on. And now he's going to really bring in the work of the spirit in our lives, highlighting to us the assurance that we have now in Christ Jesus. And so he's, he's continuing here and says eventually, uh, he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We are sons of God, aren't we? So I want to talk with you here from Horatius Bonar from this verse, Romans eight nineteen, the history of of sonship. The name sons of God is not exclusively applicable to the church. Angels are called sons, Job 38.7. So is Adam, Luke 3.38. So is Israel, Hosea 1.10. Yet the redeemed get that name in a deeper, fuller sense by reason of their higher standing and their closer connection with the Son of God. There are thus outer and inner, higher and lower circles of sonship. Christ the one center, and his redeemed occupying the innermost circle or region nearest to him and nearest to the Father. The history of these sons, these heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, the redeemed from among men divides itself into the following parts or epochs. 1. Their past eternity. They had a history ere they were born, not conscious to themselves, but truly in the eye and purpose of God. Romans 8.29, Ephesians 1, 3, 5. 2 Timothy 1.9 and Revelation 17.8. In these passages, the history of each saint and of the church of God is traced to that eternity in which God only existed. Even then they were sons of God by anticipation, sons of God in the Father's purpose and in the everlasting covenant. How marvelous, how glorious their history. Secondly, their unregenerate life on earth. They were born no better than others, shapen in iniquity, children of wrath, able to claim kindred only with the first Adam, only with the flesh and the earth, not a vestige of the second Adam about them, 
no trace of heavenly sonship, no liniment of their father in heaven. Walking according to the course of this world, hateful and hating one another, their hearts, enmity against God. But this third phase now, Bonar points out, their adoption. In God's purpose, this adoption stood out from eternity. But it was seen when they actually passed out of the family of the evil one into that of God. When they were begotten again, they became sons, receiving the name, privileges, legal rights of sons. Let us note the different statements of Scripture as to these things. They are begotten again, 1 Peter 1, three. They are born of time. They are born of spirit from above. They believe. Secondly, they believe. They pass out of the region of unbelief into that of faith. In believing, they become sons. Three, they receive Christ. They accept the Father's testimony to him as the Son of God and the Christ of God. Fourth, they get the name of sons of God. They get the name of sons. They are now called sons of God. This is their new name, given by God himself. Five, they receive the spirit of adoption. A new spirit fills them, the spirit of sonship, and Abba Father is their cry. Six, they are led by the spirit. They are not their own guides, nor do they trust in human guidance, but are led by him. Seventhly, they are chastened. Discipline is their lot, and chastisement is the badge of sonship. Eight, they are brought to glory. To this are they redeemed and called. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Ninth, they are made like Christ himself. Conformity to the Son of God is their destiny and their privilege. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Their time of obscurity. Fourthly, their time of obscurity. I'm sorry, I should have read that. So we got these different epics, right? Their eternity past, their unregenerate life on earth. But now they're adopted, right? Brought into the family of God. But now fourthly, their time of obscurity. For a season they are hidden. Men's eyes are hidden so that they do not recognize them. They are in disguise. The world does not believe that they are what they claim to be or that their prospects are so very glorious. Their life is hid with Christ and God. It doth not yet appear what they shall be. They do not wear the raiment either of kings or of sons. They are strangers and pilgrims. This is the day of their obscurity and non-acknowledgement by men. As it was with their Lord, so with them. He was unknown and unrecognized, nay, despised and rejected. This is the discipline through which they are passing. This is the manner in which they glorify the Father upon earth. This the trial of their faith, and this the touchstone of the world's willingness to own their Lord. Are we content with obscurity? Fifthly, and lastly, the last epic, the manifestation. The obscurity does not last always, nay, not long. The day is coming when the disguise shall drop off and their royal robes display themselves. When he who is their life shall appear, they shall appear with him. Then shall they be like him to whom they adhered in the day of sorrow and gloom. But let us see, one, what this manifestation is. It is revelation or outshining or transfiguration. They are in this conformed to their Lord. They were like him in their obscurity. They shall be like him in their manifestation. It shall be transfiguration glory, resurrection glory, royal glory, bridal glory, priestly glory. What a contrast between the obscurity and the manifestation will be presented in that day of unveiling when they shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. What a future is ours. How unlike our present. Secondly, when shall the manifestation be? In the day of Christ's appearing, not in the day of death. 
The soul of the saint is blessed when when he dies. He is with Christ in paradise, but still the glory is not full, and the body is still in the grave. The grave is part of our obscurity. But when time... But when uh, the Lord descends from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise, then this corruptible shall put on incorruption and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Three, how long shall the manifestation be? Forever. A whole eternity of glory. Our obscurity was but a day. Our glory is everlasting. We are to shine as the brightness of the firmament and as the stars forever and ever. What a blaze of splendor will break forth from the glorified church in the day of manifestation. What in comparison with this is the brightness of the sun or stars. Let us walk worthy of our prospects, content with present obscurity and shame, passing the time of our sojourning here in fear. That is one of the great truths, isn't it, of the gospel, that we become sons and daughters of the living God. And perhaps you've never thought about that, that, that all those different phases that the Lord knew you from all eternity. And now you, and then eventually you, you were born, right? And you were born into a sinful world. Um, but you were also, uh, you were born here and, uh, and you did not know the Lord for a long time. And you, you wonder about those things. And, but now he's, he's highlighting to us that we are children. We have been made the children of the living God. Well, lastly, I want to close from Romans chapter 8 with one more reading. There's a ton of stuff we could honestly be saying here about Romans chapter 8 because there's so many memorable verses, um, so many wonderful things that we could um, say, so many things that we could we, we could read about and, and highlight and, and such. But here, let's see here what he says here about this. I want to read from Romans. Um, excuse me here. <clears throat> Let me get to the page what I want to read here. I've got a couple of different options here and I'm still kind of choosing, honestly. Um, Okay. Let's see here. Let's read this from, this is called inspired logic. Great verse. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32. This is inspired logic that yet, did I say logic? It's logic. This is inspired logic, Horatius Bonar says, yet it is most simple and natural reasoning. It goes straight down to understanding, heart, and conscience. It is irresistible. It contains, moreover, the whole gospel of the grace of God. It announces to us that perfect love which casteth out fear and shows us the gracious character of God as interpreted and illustrated by the gift of his Son. It says, herein is love, and what will that love not do for you? Here is the measure of that love, and does not that measure take in all your need? Let us put the statement in this way, the one gift and the many gifts, or the one great gift and the many lesser gifts flowing out of it, and pledged to us by the love which gave it. First of all, the one gift. It is the unspeakable gift of which it is said, God so loved the world that he gave his Son. Our text thus expresses it. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It is then of his son, his own son, his only begotten son, his beloved son that the passage speaks. And regarding him, it says that he spared him not. He might have spared him. He did not need to do otherwise. It was an infinite sacrifice. Yet he spared him not that he might spare us. It was not want of love to him, but it was love to us that led him not to spare him. 
How shall I give thee up? He said to rebellious Israel. How much more to his obedient holy son? How shall I deliver thee up? How shall I nail thee to the cross and lay thee in the grave? My heart is turned within me. My repentance is kindled together. This one great gift he freely gave. He spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all. To lowliness, to shame, to weariness, to banishment, to sorrow, to hunger and thirst, to agony and death. He delivered him up. He spared not him that he might spare us. He delivered him up that he might not deliver us up us. The gift is one, but it is infinite. There is none like it, none, nor can be. It is the great gift, the gift of gifts. But the delivering up is that which so greatly enhances the giving and the gift. He was delivered up, one, not to honor, but to dishonor. Two, not to joy, but to sorrow. Three, not to blessing, but to the curse. Nay, was made a curse for us, was made sin for us. Four, not to angels to worship, but to devils to tempt. Five, not to a throne, but to a cross. Six, not to life, but to death. How immense, then, the gift! Though but one, it transcends myriads, nay, all other gifts gathered together. It was a test of love such as nothing else could have been. How real, how true, how vast must that love have been. Here it is, here is its sincerity demonstrated. Here are its dimensions measured. What is its height? The answer is, he spared not his son. What is its depth? He spared not his son. What is its length? He spared not his son. What is its breadth? He spared not his son, nay, he delivered him up. Nay, he laid our sins upon him. He made him a curse for us. The more that we meditate on this one gift, the more does its greatness display itself. It passeth all measurement and all understanding. Such a gift for such sinners. Such a gift for sinners, for those whose portion was wrath and condemnation. So now turning, Bonar says, we've talked about the one gift. Now, secondly, the many gifts. These are the all things of which the apostle speaks. His argument is, he who has given you his son, will he deny you anything? We cannot possibly need or ask anything half so precious as that which he has already given, and therefore we need not fear obtaining anything. He who has given a whole ocean, will he refuse a drop? He who has given all earth and heaven, will he refuse an inch of land? His willingness to give, and to give to any extent whatever has been so manifested in the gift of his Son, that we cannot doubt. That one great gift was given freely. Will he not give all other things as freely? That one gift was given unasked. Will he not give all others for the asking? That one gift cost him much. These others cost him nothing but the delight of giving. That one gift was sent to us when we were turning away from him. Will he not bestow these lesser gifts on those who are turning towards him? That one gift came when there was no intercessor. What then may we not expect when there is such an intercessor as he who is himself both gift and intercessor? When the great gift was sent, there was no blood, no righteousness, no sacrifice. What may we not count upon as to the lesser gifts, now that blood and sacrifice and righteousness have come? We are thus thrown upon God's character as interpreted by his great gift, and we are taught how to reason from that gift, how to draw our confidence up towards God from that gift, respecting all things. Among these all things, let us note the following. One, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, complete and free and unchangeable. For the chief of sinners, 
regarding which we reason as did the apostle, he that spared not his own son, will he not forgive my sins? Will he not give me peace of conscience and a sense of acceptance and deliverance from condemnation? Two, light and love. These are what he delights to give, and they have been purchased for the sinner. There is now no hindrance to his giving these. For the darkest mind there is light. For the coldest heart there is love. He that spared not his own son, will he refuse us these? Three, renewal in the whole man. He who spared not his own son, will he not renew us in the spirit of our mind? Will he not take us out, take out of us the stony heart and give the heart of flesh? For the Holy Ghost, he that gave his son, will he refuse his spirit? It cost him much to give his son, but it cost him nothing to give his spirit. Will he not give him when we ask? He that spared not his own son, will he not give us all things? Will he not quicken and comfort and heal and bless and cheer? and save well those are things for you to think about (laughs) if the lord god did not spare his own son how will he not give you all things so i hope you see as we've just quickly scratched the very this we've scratched the surface of the surface of those chapters the importance of Understanding salvation rightly, particularly the doctrine of justification, and the great comfort it brings to us, and why it's so important, and what Paul is doing there in Romans 4 through 8. Well, we're going to continue next week. We're going to talk about the calling of the Gentiles, the unbelief of the Jews, and begin to get into some of the practical exhortations that Paul is telling us and how we're supposed to live now in light of what has happened for us in the work of Jesus Christ that we've received by faith. Keep reading the Bible. Thanks for listening. Take care. God bless.